One of the ships in the 1991 Gulf War was the nuclear aircraft carrier by the name of USS Theodore Roosevelt. It was 330 meters long, 75 meters high, and 80 meters wide. It carried a crew of 5,500 people and 80 aircrafts. It could carry a combat load of 97,000 tons. This large ship, however, is given direction by two rudders that measured nine meters by six meters. An average person in that picture will be height of two meters. So you can see how small the rudders are compared to the ship. This ship is given direction by very small rudders. This morning, I would like to talk on a seemingly insignificant part of Christian life that gives us direction in a sermon entitled The Prayer of Jesus in which we will look at Luke chapter 22 and that will be our text for this morning. Luke chapter 22 verses 31 through 34. Luke 22, 31 through 34. We will also be referring to Matthew chapter 26 but this is our main text. Luke 22, 31 through 34. Let me read it for you. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. This is Jesus speaking. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Now, in this particular passage, there are three characters. One is an active Satan, two is an inactive Peter, and three is a proactive Jesus. This morning, we will look at two of the three characters and see three reasons why Peter failed and three facts about the prayer of Jesus Christ. First, let's look at inactive Peter and let's look at three reasons why Peter failed and denied his Lord. His first reason for denying his master of three and a half years was because he had self-confidence. Look at verse 32. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied. Jesus had just told him that he was going to fail. And the Bible says, but he replied. Peter was a self-confident man. And he thought that he could do it. This is the basis for humanism and the self-help philosophy. In scripture, there is no concept of self-confidence. It is about Christ confidence. There is no self-confidence. Jesus will touch us where we are most self-confident to make us less self-confident and more Christ-dependent. As a religious fanatic, Paul was on one of his most important missions as he was going to Damascus. And it was on that way that Jesus touched him and broke him down and brought him to his knees so that he would call him Lord. Paul says later in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says in Philippians 4. 13, I can do all things through Christ. He does not say, I can do all things, nor does he say Christ can do all things, which is an obvious fact. But he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is no concept of self-confidence in scripture. 
It is all about God confidence. William Ernest Henley was born in Gloucester, England in 1849 and suffered tuberculosis of his left foot at the age of 12 and doctors had to amputate that foot. Later, he suffered the same disease on his right foot and when the doctors said that they needed to amputate that foot, he refused and instead chose to be hospitalized for three years till 1875. When he got out in 1875, without his foot amputated, he wrote a poem called Invictus, which became a very famous poem for those who are graduating and in valedictorian scenarios. And this is what it says. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is self-confidence. In 1995, Timothy McVeigh was a 27-year-old young boy who masterminded the Oklahoma City bombings in which 168 people were killed. He was sentenced to death in 2001, and when they asked him for his last words, he quoted from Invictus and said, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Several years after William Henley wrote these words, Dorothea Day redid this poem and called it My Captain, and she said, out of the light that dazzles me, Bright as a sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince or cry aloud. Under that rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, despite the menace of the years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll, Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Peter was a self-confident man, and therefore he failed. The second reason why Peter failed is because he spurned warnings. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 35. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now this is just after Jesus told him, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, therefore I've prayed for you. He did not heed a warning. Warning is something that's given before the event happens. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. There are different kinds of warnings. We give warnings to children, parents give warnings to children. Don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. If you do this, that will happen. If you do that, this will happen. Pastor stands here for the past 20 odd years and has been giving warning week after week. The scripture is full of warnings. There are a lot of warnings that we need to heed. And if we don't heed it, we will fall. Look at this verse from Proverbs 29 verse 1. 
A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Now, whenever I read this verse, it reminds me of these old cartoons where, you know, let's say Tom and Jerry, one guy is chasing the other, and as they run over a cliff, the guy who's being chased, um, just before he reaches the end of the cliff, he, he swerves away. But the guy who is chasing continues to run across over the edge of the cliff, and in the cartoon they show this guy continuing to run in midair, and then suddenly he realizes, oh my God, there's nothing under me, and so he falls straight down. That's the picture that I get when I read this verse, that a person who doesn't listen to repeated warnings suddenly is destroyed. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says in his sermon, The Sinner's Refuge, about a person who does not listen to warnings. Alas for thee, my hearer, alas for thee. The ox led to the slaughter is more wise than thou. The sheep that goes to its death is not so foolish as thou art. Alas for thee that thy pulse should beat a march to hell. Alas that yonder clock like the muffled drum should be the music of the funeral of thy soul. Alas that thou should fold thine arms in pleasure when the knife is at thy heart. Alas that thou should sing and make merriment when the rope is about thy neck and the drop is tottering under thee. Alas for thee that thou should go thy way and live merrily and happily and yet be lost. Thou reminds me of the silly moth that dances round about the flame, singeing itself for a while and then at last plunging to its death. Such art thou. Alas that he should be spinning your own winding sheets, that he should every day by your sins be building your own gallows, that by your transgression he should be digging your own graves and working hard to pile the faggots for your own eternal burning. Oh, that he were wise that he understood this, that he would consider your latter end. We need to heed the warnings that God gives us in Scripture. The third thing that Peter did not do is that he did not pray. If you stay on um, Matthew 26, verse 41, Jesus told Peter, Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Verse 43, he found them sleeping. Verse 45, he still found them sleeping. Peter did not pray. Isn't it interesting that even though Jesus was praying for Peter, Jesus asked Peter to pray. Why would Peter need to pray for himself when Jesus is already praying for him? Salvation may be a free gift, but we need to work out our salvation. Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. God works in us, and we need to work out salvation. Spiritual maturity does not come by accident. We cannot do everyday things and expect to become spiritually mature years from now. It requires discipline, obviously not in our own strength, but in the strength of God, but it requires discipline. We have to undergo the discipline of prayer, undergo the discipline of Bible reading, undergo the discipline of fellowship with the saints. There is no shortcut, there is no uh, fast food, there is no pill for spiritual maturity. It comes by an active process, not a passive process. Peter did not pray. In his book, Why Revival Tarries, Leonard Ravenhill says this, 
We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, few fighters. And that's why revival tarries. Let me ask you, how many of us have a fixed time at home to pray? Not in front of the TV, not playing with your iPhone, not in front of the computer, where you sit at home, not playing with your kids either, do nothing else but pray. It is easier to read the Bible for most people than to pray. Peter did not pray, and therefore he fell. Let's look at three things about the prayer of Jesus. The first point about what Jesus did is what he did not do. Jesus did not stop Satan. He didn't say, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I stopped him. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Christian life may not be free from problems. God is not going to take away every single problem that we have. And the reason why he keeps our problems is so that we can be dependent on him. He will break down our self-confidence and the pillars that we have built around us to hold us up. One by one, he will break those pillars down so that we will depend more and more on him. He keeps failures in our lives so that we can be completely dependent on him and not on ourselves. Um, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's not that God wants us to fail, but sometimes there is no other way that we will seek him if we did not fail. And so we may go through failure after failure in the process, depending more and more on God. He lets Satan sift us. He lets Satan be a thorn in our side. Anyone who is remotely useful for God will have a thorn in their side. Anybody who is remotely useful for God will have a thorn in their side. Because it is possible to be self-conceited. You should know what your thorn is. If it's not a thorn from a teenage habit that you acquired, it may end up being through one of your kids. Or through one of your in-laws, I don't know. <laughs> but everybody who wants to serve God will have a thorn so that we are kept on the ground. The second thing about the prayer of Jesus is that he prays for us. I'm going to switch into Bible study mode for about two minutes and tell you about two kinds of prayers that Jesus prays for us. The first prayer that he prays for us is what is called as intercession. In Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. 
There are two kinds of prayers that Jesus prays for us. One is called intercession. Intercession is a kind of prayer that Jesus prays before something happens, before we sin. Let's read another verse. John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It is a prayer before we sin. There is a prayer that Jesus prays after we sin. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 is the fifth last book in the Bible. Oh, 1 John is. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have someone who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That prayer is called advocacy, a prayer that Jesus prays for us after we sin to counter the accusation of the evil one against us and to plead forgiveness. So those are the two prayers that Jesus prays for us. So the first point about Jesus is that he did not stop Satan. And second is that he does indeed pray for us. The third point is in the form of a question. Why didn't the prayer of Jesus work? Jesus prayed for Peter. And yet Peter went and denied him. Why didn't the prayer of Jesus work? If the prayer of Jesus did not work... What point is there in me praying? Because my prayer is not going to work either. Now, the first time that I was receiving the sermon, I sat with this question for about two hours, and I could not understand why Jesus' prayer did not work. There had to be some other answer to that. And I read the passage again and again and again and again, back and forth, back and forth, and nothing came through. Until I just kept reading, and towards the end of that particular passage, we find the answer. But before we come to it, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. And just keep a finger there in Matthew 27, and then we will read Luke 22. Okay? Keep a finger in Matthew 27, and we will read the verse in Luke 22 first. In Luke 22, I read from verse 60 onward. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you are talking about. This was the third time that Peter was denying Jesus. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And Luke twenty-two sixty-two says this, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Turn your Bibles to, to Matthew 27, verse 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. As a result of the prayer of Jesus, Peter went out and wept bitterly, and he did not hang himself. What was the prayer of Jesus? That your faith may not fail. That was the prayer of Jesus. Even after Peter failed, he had just enough faith to realize that he can come back to Jesus and it will all be well. And it's because of the prayer of Jesus that Peter was able to come back and seek forgiveness and be useful for his kingdom.
God will allow a failure in our lives in order to break us, but he will not destroy us. Isaiah 42 verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Peter was never the same again. He never depended on his strength again. Look at this video of a father and a son by the name of Dick and Ricky Hoyt. Now, as you look at this video, I want you to imagine God as a father in this video. And imagine you and me as the son. Ladies and gentlemen, for us to experience the taste of victory and the thunderous applause of heaven, Jesus had to go through the experience of hell. Because of the failure of Peter, he denied him. But because of the prayer of Jesus, he came right back. Thank you.